I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and welcome to Paranormal Almanac. That's right, I am your host, Kurt Sandvig, and welcome to another edition of Paranormal Almanac. Well, Halloween might be over, but that doesn't mean we can't keep talking about ghost stories. And on this week's edition, I have ghost stories from around the world. The first story tonight is from Tohoku, Japan. Now, I'm sure you all know this, but just for context, in 2011, there was a massive 9.0 earthquake off the Pacific coast of Tohoku, and it brought a horrific tsunami inland literally wiping towns and people off the face of the earth, leaving nothing but destruction in its wake. This is the terrifying beginning of this ghost story. For you see, just after the tsunami in Ishinomaki, a town where 6,000 people died, cab drivers started telling stories of picking up ghost passengers, and they all had similar tales to tell. According to the drivers, the ghosts, who looked just like normal people, would get into their cabs and give their destinations, only to disappear without paying their fare. The earliest incident was reported just a few months after the tsunami, when a cab driver recounted picking up a woman in a long coat who asked to be taken to the city's Manamahama district. He told the passenger, The area is mostly empty, is it okay? The woman replied in a shivering voice, Have I died? And when the cab driver immediately turned around, she was gone. Another driver, who was in his 40s, related how a man, apparently in his 20s, got into his cab and pointed towards the front. When the driver repeatedly asked the man for a destination, he replied, Hiyoriyama, mountain. However, when the taxi arrived at the destination, the man had disappeared. Now, there have been numerous ghost passenger stories told from Japan in and around Tohoku. Many cab drivers are now starting to get angry about these ghost passengers because they're having to pay the abandoned fares themselves. From Japan, let's move on to Chile for a couple of ghost stories. First, on June 18, 1991, a sudden mudslide swept away large portions of Antofagasta, Chile. More than 100 people died in the disaster, and thousands of people were left homeless. Now here's where the ghost stories begin. After this tragic natural event, an unnatural one began according to the local paper Las Altimas Noticias of Santiago de Chile. It reported that residents of Villo Los Salares, a village near Antofagasta that was home to half of the landslide victims, hear screams and sobs in the night to this very day. There's also tales of a ghost boy, dressed all in white, who wanders the village and passes through solid objects. A man named Luis told the paper, A few weeks ago, I saw a little boy dressed in white. He was about four years old. He passed right through the gate without any effort. My oldest son also saw it. He told me that he felt chills, and when he went to the window, the little boy was staring at him before vanishing. Other eerie events in the village include levitating glasses, disembodied sobs, and floating apparitions. And that's not the only appearance of the ghost boy. Many more residents of the village have seen him as well, though none can identify who he was. Now let's go to February 27, 2010, where a massive earthquake rocked the coast of central Chile killing hundreds, and literally splitting entire buildings in half. And that is literal. If you see photos of this earthquake, there is a building completely split in half. It was horrific. It was the sixth largest earthquake ever recorded and triggered a huge tsunami which devastated several towns. Tales of ghosts soon followed. In Constitution, people claimed to see eerie shadows near a bridge where 12 people had lost their lives. They also heard unexplained footsteps and whispers in the dark. Other survivors noticed that the screens of their cell phones suddenly lighting up as if an incoming call was imminent, yet the calls never come. 
Around two months after the quake, Chilean newspapers reported that survivors in afflicted regions heard the anguished cries of the dead. The sounds came from a forest where some 30 people had died while camping. A local construction worker, Juan Morales, says it's the people who died here. They're asking to be found again and given a burial. The tales from Constitución have not stopped. People are still hearing the dead, and they're still desperately trying to find the bodies to give them the proper burial they deserve. Now let's move a little more local, to me anyways. Let's travel to the United States, to Bell, Tennessee. This is the story of the Bell Witch of Tennessee. It has inspired several documentaries and 2005's An American Haunting. The story of the Bell Witch first surfaced in the early 1800s after farmer John Bell and his family moved from North Carolina to the community of Red River, Tennessee. Bell bought and amassed 328 acres of land in the area. Then his family started to report a variety of strange encounters. These included finding an animal that appeared to be a hybrid between a dog and a rabbit, finding a cave that they said was haunted or they heard voices coming from, or even saw a woman standing there only to watch her disappear, and a series of apparent hallucinations that the entire family had that included night terrors about rats gnawing away at the family's beds, and eventually a series of faint whispering voices that sounded almost like old women softly singing hymns. According to historians, family members later found a vial of an unknown liquid in the house. They could not explain where the vial came from or who had put it there, as it wasn't there before. They gave a dose of the liquid to their cat, who immediately died. Because that's what you do when you find a random vial of odd liquid. You give it to your cat. Come on, people. Anyhow, according to the stories, following the Battle of New Orleans, future president Andrew Jackson came to the Bell Farm to investigate the stories of a haunting. And it was he who dubbed the entity the Bell Witch. By 1820, John Bell had grown ill and more convinced than ever that the presence in his house wished him to die. It's said that after Bell's funeral... The ghost could be heard singing and laughing loudly in the graveyard. And after Bell's death, save for a few reported encounters during which the entity bid the family farewell, the presence seemed to largely disappear from the home. It was rumored that the ghost had promised to return to Bell's direct descendant in 107 years, which would have been 1935. That's a very odd, specific date. I'm going to return in 107 years. Not 100 years, not 109 but in 107 years, I'm going to find Bell's direct descendant, and oh boy, it's going to start over again. The descendant in question, Dr. Charles Bailey Bell, wrote a book about the Bell Witch legend, although he never mentioned having an encounter of his own. There are literally dozens of books and newspaper articles regarding the Bell Witch and the experiences at the house. These go back all the way to the beginning of the Bell Witch legend. One from 1886 talked about an invisible entity shaking hands and having conversations but also spilling objects in front of dozens of witnesses. And one from 1937 about a group of people near the Bell Witch Cave that were joking about the legend when they saw a figure of a woman sitting on top of a cliff over the cave. They all panicked and ran away, and I can't blame them for that. It seems like the Bell Witch is very polite and forgiving, but not someone you want to mess with. Let's move on to Chicago to another possible folklore tale. The tale of the ghost of Mary Bragovi or as she's known around the area, Resurrection Mary. Mary is said to ask for rides from strangers only to disappear right in front of their eyes. Bragrovi was a young Polish girl who died on March 10, 1934, in a car accident while coming home after a night of dancing from the O. Henry Ballroom. 
And this can be easily corroborated. Mary did indeed live in the area and die like the tale says. The reason I say it's folklore is a lot of people say that it's just the local area's myth. Everybody has those local myths. Every area has those local myths of ghost school children that push cars off of railroad tracks or an apparition of a woman who walks the same area where she was murdered. So that's the only reason I'm putting this in the folklore tale, just because the stories are numerous about Resurrection Mary. Now, many people report stories of her walking around barefoot in a white dress along Chicago's Archer Road, also called Interstate Highway 171. Brad Steiger, author of Real Ghosts, Restless Spirits, and Haunted Places, said, As people drive her home, she asks them to stop in front of the cemetery gates on Archer. She gets out of the car, runs across the road, and dematerializes at the gate. In May 1978, Sean and Jerry Late reported almost crashing into Resurrection Mary driving late one night. They saw a blonde woman in a white gown and slammed on the brakes, only to have her vanish into a cemetery. Most people report seeing Resurrection Mary during stormy nights or snowy nights, though she is not affected by the weather conditions at all. Ghost hunter Richard Crow said, It might be raining cats and dogs, but Mary will be completely dry. Next up is another tale of a hitchhiking woman, but this one comes to us all the way from South Africa. The tale of Marie Charlotte Rue. On Easter Sunday, 1968, a girl named Marie Charlotte Rue was killed in an auto accident near Uniondale, South Africa. The N9 highway is said to be haunted by her spirit. The first reported sighting of Rue's spirit was on the Easter weekend of 1976. And since then, many have reported seeing her. Just like Resurrection Mary, Marie seems to be a local legend. There are numerous sightings of her. Andre Kotzi shared a story with the Daily Breeze in 1980. I was riding near the Baramdas turnoff, the site of the fatal accident a decade ago, when I felt my hair stand on end inside my crash helmet and someone, or something, put its arms around my waist from behind. There was something sitting on my bike. Nearby cafe owner Janetta Meyer said motorcyclists frequently tell her similar stories of picking up a blonde woman who later vanishes. I think the moral of these two stories are, just don't pick up hitchhikers. At best, you're getting some random person in your car when you don't have any idea who they are, and at worst, you're picking up a ghost. Next up is the tale of the SS Alkamos. The SS Alkamos was built as an American ship for use in World War II. It was sold to Norway, which used it for weapons transport during the war. In 1944, a radio operator who worked on the ship, Maud E. Steen, was killed by one of the crew, who then shot himself. Norway covered up the incident and claimed that she was killed by enemy fire. And after the war, the ship was sold to a Greek shipping company. And that's when the ghost story begins. Strange, unexplained accidents kept happening within the ship. In 1963, it crashed into a reef off the coast of Australia. It was towed to Fremantle for repairs, but while it was there, the Alkamos mysteriously caught fire and had to be towed to Hong Kong for more work. Now, it had barely left Fremantle when the tow line snapped on its way to Hong Kong and it ran aground. The tow company couldn't get it unstuck, so they left a caretaker on board until something could be done. That caretaker experienced many strange things on board, including feelings of anger, hearing knocking, footsteps, and voices, sometimes conversationally, and sometimes a man and woman arguing. Over the years, a few companies tried to salvage the ship, but each time someone tried, bad things would happen to their crew. Eventually, it was abandoned and left slowly sinking into the waters, where it can still be seen today. So if you're near Fremantle, 
and you're feeling brave enough, throw on a wetsuit and an air tank and head on over, and maybe you too can see or hear Maud E. Steen and her killer on board. This next story, our last one, is still keeping with World War II, sort of. This one is about a father who took a trip through France with his family in 2008. He was fascinated with historical war locations and wanted to visit Normandy. His daughter was seven years old at the time, and he says that she had, at that point, never been exposed to any history about World War II and didn't know anything about the uniforms. The first stop was to Pegasus Bridge, then onto the beaches and bunkers of Normandy to the west. He says the first area they were able to actually see German bunkers was Point du Hoc, which has remained as it was since the U.S. Army Rangers took it from the Germans on D-Day. He and his daughter toured many bunkers and escape tunnels while his wife watched. Many times, the bunkers were totally dark with no light other than him taking flash pictures and lighting it up for a brief second so they could not see anything specific. He guesses they keep it dark to keep sightseers from sticking around too long. And he says, long story short, we saw a ton of bunkers and all kinds of old blown up stuff. And again, he says, my daughter has never seen what a German soldier looks like or the weapons they carry. I have no pictures of them anywhere in my house. And there is nothing that she could see that she could relate to the look of them. In fact, even when he's playing any World War II PC games, she is not allowed to watch me or be in the room. And those are his wife's orders. About a year later, his daughters often spoke of things or men that she saw looking at her, pointing guns at her, and following her while they were in the bunkers and around the Normandy area. She often described them as crouching down, hiding behind corners, holding guns, and looking as if they were, quote, very, very mad. Finally, he said, it was time I'd prodded her a little bit more, as she was one year older and able to describe better what she saw. So he waited until one of his dad-daughter date nights while his wife attended college classes on Tuesday nights. After dropping off the wife while they got in the car while driving, he said to her, what did they look like? She responded, they were mad and wearing either gray or very darkish green, no, definitely some kind of grayish color. The helmets were even darker. He asked her, were there a lot of them? She said, yes, hiding behind trees, in the bunkers, in all the little corners, or behind the walls, crouched down or kind of kneeling. He asked her if they had nice uniforms, and she said, yes, they were very nice, with lots of buttons in the front and things on the shoulder. He asked her if they had any medals, anything on the head or chest, and she said, yes, something like a circle with a star in it, right on the chest. He then asked her if she was scared, and she said, yes, but I knew they weren't trying to hurt me, so I didn't think anything of it, but there were a lot of them everywhere I looked. They were moving around like army men do, kind of crawling but bent over. When we would walk out of a bunker, I would see one in the grass or behind a tree. Then when I was in the car, I could see them looking at me from behind a fence in a field, sometimes a lot of them, sometimes only one or two. He asked her why she didn't say anything to him, and she said, that she couldn't, she didn't know what they were, she knew they weren't real, and that he wouldn't believe her anyway. By this time, they got to the restaurant, and when they settled in, he grabbed a pen and paper and asked her to draw some stuff to see what she saw in her head. First, he asked about the gun the soldier was carrying, and she proceeded to draw what resembled the MP40, which was a period-accurate German gun. She then drew the standard German helmet without ever had seeing one before. She also drew the period-specific camouflage for German soldiers. He says he kept the paper and they went to the local library. He found a World War II book with a lot of pictures in it, and he showed her pictures of British, American, and German soldiers. She immediately pointed out the German soldiers and said, that's the helmet, that's the jacket, that's the gun. 
From there, they went home and he went online to show her even more photos. He says that every German soldier that she picked out from the pictures were period specific to World War II. He then image searched medals and she specifically picked out the unit designation badge that all German soldiers wore in World War II. Needless to say, the dad went from a skeptic to a believer. Everything his daughter picked out and drew and showed him were World War II soldiers that would have been in Normandy and in those bunkers at that time. What do you guys think? What was the daughter seeing? Was it an imprint of World War II? Were they ghosts? They seemed to be able to see her too. And how was she able to know so much about World War II German soldiers and their gear? These were just the tip of the iceberg for all the ghost stories we have in store for you. I have enough to last us for years and years, but if you have a local ghost story or legend in your town, please let me know about it and I'll add it to the list. So thank you again for listening to Paranormal Almanac. Once again, I am your host, Kurt Sandvig. If you could please, please, please do me a favor and head on over to iTunes. Make sure you click subscribe and give us a review. And also, head on over to our Facebook page. Thank you so much for everybody that's left me messages. I really appreciate them. I've read them all, and hopefully I've responded to all of you. Thank you so much for listening. I can't thank you enough. And if there's anything you want to hear, any specific story, any specific cryptid, just let me know, and I'd love to do it for you. And thank you again for listening to Paranormal Almanac.